Hi everyone, it's Joey Remini from seekingbalance.com.au. Today we're going to bring the conversation toward the experience of pain, which is common to so many of us at different points in our lives. And we're talking about reframing pain and the experience of it and how we embody and move through it. And my guest speaker today is Charlotte Burns, an osteopath based in Australia, who has taken on further education and further interest in this complex topic of pain. So as a pain educator and an osteopath, um, I really want to welcome Charlotte's perspective and wisdom. So thank you for your time today, Charlotte. Thanks, Joey. Thank you very much. So why don't we start, Charlotte, with just what interested you in this conversation around humans and pain? Sure. So, well, as well, a bit more of a background about me as well as a, being an osteopath and pain educator. I'm also a mother of three young children and a learner, a curious learner about my own body uh, um, and also other people's bodies. And I guess the I've been an osteopath for uh, 20 years just under 20 years. Um, but the journey around discovering more around pain and particularly persistent pain started around eight years ago. Uh, I had a incredible birth experience with my first child uh, where I really embodied the uh, feelings of discomfort um, and really honoured my body during that birth and I was amazed at the uh, the process and the experience and I just thought I felt so safe during my labour and I thought there's got to be something in that. I, I was at home the whole time. I had an unexpected home birth because I felt so comfortable <laughs> Um, it comfortable in the discomfort. Um, and yeah, that sort of triggered my thoughts on exploring what that's all about. Mm. Um, I then dipped back in and out of being an osteopath between my three babies. Mm. And each time I went back to work, I thought, oh, I just didn't feel like I was providing the best quality care that I could. I felt like there was something missing. Uh, so I started sort of Googling and learning, doing some just self-directed learning around persistent pain. And some of you might have um, heard of the name Lorimer Mosley, uh, a real leader in this field. So I started being a real nerd and listening to all his TED Talks and blogs and uh and then after the birth of my third child, I was ready to delve into some more directed learning. Uh, and yeah, that's when I studied through UniSA, um, the pain science and education course. And really since then, it's just um, lots of doors keep opening. I've changed the way I practice. Um, I do still do hands-on osteopathy, but um really morphing into more pain education pain coach um with a lot of hands-off 
work with clients. Yeah. Shall we start by talking about, I mean, we all, I think, have our own understanding of the word pain. And, you know, if if we cut ourselves or knock ourselves or have physical injuries and we understand pain from that perspective and then, you know, there's also grief and emotional pains and there's all sorts of different types of pains that we experience in the body. And mm. our are aware that these are, are neural networks and neural synapses that are communicating things up and down between the brain and body. And at some point in the in that neural cluster, we've interpreted that as a painful experience. But do you want to just talk a little bit about what is pain from yeah. your perspective? And, um, mm-hmm. you know, what is the purpose of pain? Let's start that conversation. Oh, love that. Sure. Uh, because I was going to talk about um, the purpose of pain, but you've led straight into that. Thank you. Mm. Um, so I guess, you know, if anyone Google's persistent pain, we we often see a time time frame and, and it's traditionally defined as anything, any pain um, lasting more than three months. Um, and then we can delve d- deeper and look at um, any pain that persists beyond a natural healing time. Mm. Um, but they're pretty basic definitions. I I thought we could pick apart the IASP definition of pain, which is IASP is the International Study of Pain, mm-hmm. and they define pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So we can, I guess the two parts that I would like to pull apart of that definition is the emotional experience. We can come back to that, but that end Um, part of the definition, the potential tissue damage. Mm. So you can experience, we all know we can experience pain with actual tissue damage. Mm -hmm. As you said, Joey, like when you cut yourself, roll your ankle on the netball court, um, step on a piece of your kid's Lego, that happened to me this morning. (laughs) Um, But what surprises most people and and potentially not your um people on that will be listening to this um podcast joey you can let me know but is that you can experience pain when there's no tissue damage present and that's because the purpose of pain is protection and pain is a great a great protector yeah so when with persistent pain, the pain system becomes more efficient and like many of our body systems, our protective systems, they can become overprotective. So it's learned and adapted to become more efficient and more protective of that particular body area. Can I just say here that's like almost the exact description of like someone experiencing hyperacusis? Um, and possibly even misophonia. Um, and remembering these are theories and our knowledge in the world is growing and changing all the time. So collectively, I think as humans, we're trying to understand some of these really complex human experiences. But essentially, as sounds come into the ears, 
And for people who have experienced acoustic acoustic shock experiences where it's it is painful and there's like a a really loud um you know uh squawk or something in a headphone and it startles the body, which creates also that emotional fight, flight, fear response. And the actual physical mechanisms of the ear tighten up around the eardrum and the ossicles, the little inner ear bones. And it's a protection mechanism to stop too many sound vibrations entering uh, further down the track. But then when there's that persistent association with pain being dangerous and, um, sorry, with sound being perceived as dangerous and painful, daily quiet, soft, safe noises then experience that overactive protection mechanism which part of the therapy is really learning to neutralize that emotional response and find ways to change the relationship to that sensory cluster of sound coming in hmm. this is why i wanted right. to talk with charlotte because of the massive overlap um, and thank you for making that yeah connection more um to resonate who's who, your yeah, client pop population joey yeah yeah and a lot of our clients will also have that chronic head neck and shoulder skeletomuscular pains that leads to headaches and migraines and and that's because whenever we move the head and we're adjusting the vestibular signals if that's again associated with the risk of dizziness or discomfort or symptomatology we sort of block ourselves out and all of the muscles tighten up and then that can lead to mm. again those persistent pain sensations and signals and protection cycles that they feed each other so yeah and yeah, one thing I'd like to say here and um I'm often on repeat with this uh phrase is um to remember that all pain is real your pain is real and only you know how you're experiencing that so if someone's talking to you around you know oh, that's just your perception of pain or there's no tissue damage so there shouldn't be any pain mm -mm, that is not that is not on your pain is real all pain is real and I actually think that that's where um you know pain education in the past has potentially been misconstrued or not um presented appropriately or we haven't had you know enough um research behind it but um I think in the past a lot of people have come away from having a pain education session saying all oh, right so you're telling me it's all in my head yeah or I and that's really common in our audience actually because their symptoms are invisible elusive hard to capture from a physical perspective might be all normal test results but yeah. they know they don't feel quite right and it's uncomfortable and it's persistent and there's no explanation but but as Charlotte said you know there may not be a saber-toothed tiger chasing us but my two-year-old the other day on a bushwalk was like mummy there's a tiger and I sort of thought he was joking but then he kept on saying there's a tiger and I'm like can you see a tiger he's like yeah it's getting me. And I said, okay, let's, and I really honored that that's his reality. There's no physical tiger, but in his world, there are neural maps firing, representing a tiger chasing him and honoring that reality for him. I paused. I told him I was there with him to protect him. And that next time he sees the tiger to say, please be gentle with me, tiger. And I started giving him skills on how to relate to the tiger because for him, it's real. 
And I, I use that example because there's a difference between outer world reality and inner world reality and whatever you feel is real. That is actually firing and synapsing in your inner world. And it's really mm -hmm. important that you not only have that level of honest, authentic relationship to yourself, but that you find other practitioners, friends or family who will honour that with you for the social witnessing because that does actually help the brain reorganise itself, which is part of the healing, which Charlotte and I will get to. Mm. Um, yes, just to tie in with that um, little story around your son, how that would have been very scary for him <laughs> at the time. So well done for taking that moment of pause, checking in. And I guess what was happening in his brain at the time and what happens in any given moment, second, minute, hour, day, is that our brain is always, so the pain's not in the head, but we need a brain to be able, if we didn't have a brain, we wouldn't experience pain because brain, the brain is where we are constantly in every moment, we are constantly evaluating the balance between the data that's coming in for evidence of danger mm -hmm. and versus the data that's but it's not just, sorry, it's not just the data that's coming in, the data that's stored in our memories as well and that we've learned. Um, the balance between that evidence of, of danger and the evidence of safety. And in any given moment, um, if the credible evidence of safety outweighs that evidence of danger, so more safety and less danger, then there's no threat in that particular moment and there's no need for a protective response mm -hmm. and you can all guess and guess what I'm going to say next is the opposite yeah so the more if there's a outweighing of credible evidence of danger over safety so more danger less safety we get an overwhelming feel that there's a there's a threat we need to protect ourselves and remember what I said before that the purpose of pain is protection so when we need to protect ourselves we elicit a pain response in that given moment and that will often bring us into those fight flight freeze fawn cycles that my community is familiar with and so mm -hmm. just to reiterate that this is really healthy, vital, beautiful human brain and body function and that your body and brain are talking to each other. So there's a lot of wisdom actually held in your fingers, toes, arms, legs and body. And that's going up into the brain, contributing to the data, which is why a lot of Rocksteady comes back to body scanning and really looking at the whole body. I need more data here. I need more data. Do I have any safety data? Because that will help yeah. keep the amygdala and emotional brain areas with really relevant, useful information in the present moment. And checking in, is there a bushfire? Is there a flood? Is there any anything I can sense and feel now that's adding to that important data around safety and threats and danger? And so being in this um, sort of mitigation of fear and danger is what keeps us as a species alive. And I think mm. learning how to harness and use it, a um, little bit like my two-year-old with his experience of the tiger, 
I kept checking in on him because that tiger kept coming back throughout the days, but he was building his resilience in relating to the tiger and saying, gentle tiger, friendly tiger. So he was changing his relationship to the tiger. And as a mother or um, adult figure, I was helping give him those tools of resilience and sovereignty and getting to know all of that input and data he's collecting in his inner world. And really, it was quite striking for me. I had that moment of going, my job here is to validate him and believe him. And how often in the wider world, and no one's to blame here, but just, you know, many of us will have not been believed, not been listened to, not been validated um, throughout our lives with various authority figures, whether that's with our parents, in schools, with doctors, with employers. And another word I just that came to me while you were talking, Charlotte, mm-hmm. and I just learned this recently, it's this concept of gaslighting ourselves. It's a really confronting term, but it's when we actually feel things within ourselves that's not being validated by the outer world and perhaps no one's understanding us or believing us. So then we start redirecting that disbelief and denial and dismissal back into ourselves and we stop honouring the value and purpose of these signals within our body. And remember, these signals are designed for us to connect to. The brain and the body want to have that synergy. And when Mm -hmm. we leave our body and go slide ourselves and dismiss, we end up caught up most likely in these fear loops. Mm. Did you want to add anything to that, um, Charlotte? Um. Yeah, I I guess um, something I often do with clients is um, get them to go away with the task of, and I'm trying to break it up into some some headings for them to make it a little bit clearer, but trying to delve into their inner world, their external environment, their past experiences, and write down a few um, dangers and, and safeties. And I think what you're talking about there, Joey, is those dangers that are deep, deep within and those fear responses that are deep within or being suppressed. And I think the most powerful um, moments of, of change and pointing the recovery in the right direction is when those hard-to-find points of danger or safety like they can be hidden under a big dark rock somewhere in our system I mean metaphorically um that um when they're uncovered and and discovered um that that's when yeah recovery really um heads in the right direction because we're always changing and it's just um we can't, we actually can't ever stop changing. Yeah. So we just want to make sure we change in the right direction. Mm. Yeah. It's actually, you know, a big part of the Rocksteady process and program is um, helping people shift that philosophical way of being in the world or a paradigm shift away from, I don't want these sensations and symptoms, get rid of them, fix me, give me a device, give me a pill, just Look, modern medicine is so amazing. Surely someone can get rid of this sound or get rid of this dizziness. 
when actually Rocksteady says, okay, what about if we put all a car park those ideas aside for now and experiment with what if my body actually wants me to honor the wisdom behind these sensory clusters? Because remember, if we're afraid of or triggered by our own sensations, we are perpetually stuck in that threatening danger loop because we're mm. actually afraid of signals that are generated by us for us to tune into. So really developing a sense of safety, at least a neutral emotion with sensation clusters and sensory experiences is really such a huge part of the journey. And I think all of this links into the importance of language, which I know we also want to talk about when we mm. get stuck in what's abnormal, what's wrong, you know, symptoms, mm. chronic symptoms, all of these med medical labels, you know, and many of um, Charlotte and my clients will have literally lists of medical diagnoses they've been given over the years, mm -hmm. which, which serve a purpose, you know, and there's use for that, especially between health professionals documenting things. But for you as a whole person, you're you. You're not your many years or your hyperacusis or your misophonia or your pelvic pain. You're mm. you as a whole person. And learning to have a, a really neutral or non-judgmental language about how you experience your inner world, reframe it, befriend it, be brave and courageous to search for more safety signals within yourself. That is really what the Rocksteady process is about. And it's not overnight. It's a hugely personal, nuanced journey. And as therapists mm. on the sideline, you know, there's only a small role we can play in really grounding you and encouraging you to go into that place and find those rocks and get curious about some of those very old, deep beliefs that might be triggering cycles of fear or self-rejection or self-doubt. Who knows what we'll find. Mm. But also mm. for um, just humanising the conversation and transparency, I have my own rocks that I'm still discovering. This is such an ongoing journey of learning who I am and how I relate to the world and the dissonances between the outer world and my inner world. It's been a never-ending, enlightening process for me personally. So really just, mm. I think, um, debunking this myth of arriving somewhere and then suddenly you get it and all good. It's, in my yes. experience, it's just an ongoing curiosity. Yes. Um, I think, yeah, uh, well, a few great points in there, Joey, but I think um, I, I often, often so every day that the people I see are, have been through that journey of trying to find the quick fix and I spend a lot of time, yeah, talking about the need for patience and, and curiosity um, with um, still acknowledging that, you know, in terms of medical world that, you know, we need to rule out red, red flags or, you know, is there someone, something that's not been missed? So let's not dismiss that. But um, and then the other point that I just wanted to draw back on was, yeah, that, that sort of long list of diagnoses, um, particularly in the pain world, um, uh, fibromyalgia and, and widespread pain is something I, I see a lot. And I often, well, I, I feel like that sort of, is, is it not two, two categories makes it feel, sound really simple, but um, there's, there's people that I'll ask, you know, does that label resonate with you? You know, do you, 
do you say, oh, yeah, I do I go around saying, oh, I've got fibromyalgia? Some people really do enjoy that diagnosis and label and feel validated with that and others, yeah, it doesn't resonate at all. And it's like, well, we need to work that out because then that can be often a barrier for moving forward if you're sort of holding that label over you as well. Mm. Something else I wanted to mention, and this is um, earlier on when you first said, and I really think it's important that we repeat it a lot, that, you know, whatever you feel is real. If you experience pain or discomfort, even if there's no known logical reason behind it, you are feeling it. And that is your reality. That is literally what is firing through your body and brain synapses. It's happening. There's a physiological basis for why you're feeling that. And as I learn more about neurotypes and neurodivergence, one of the unusual manifestations of being human is synesthesias. And for some people, they have mirror touch synesthesia. So I think they, I think um, Mozart, for example, could hear music and see it in colors. So there was a crossover of how he would hear and see things. And that was his beautiful, healthy brain type, normal for him, right? So neurodiversity says we all have our own flavor and spice of experiencing the world. So for those of you listening, mirror touch synesthesia is when you potentially see someone um, fall and hurt their arm, you experience their pain. You literally mirror their pain. So you're not physically hurting your fibers, but you are mirroring through this deep empathy. And it's, it's the way your brain and body are wired, just as a biodiversity of a forest strengthens a forest, when we have different neurodiversity amongst humans and different people feeling and sensing and experiencing the world with a a spectrum of difference, we strengthen our species. So I know for myself, when I watch movies, I am so moved by the characters for days afterwards, I am thrumming with a physiological felt sense of the character's journey. And I have Mm -hmm. to pace myself with watching movies because it's quite energy consuming for me. So I suspect I have an element of that mirror touch going on for me, or I have a physiologically I'm born with more mirror neurons than maybe some other people, not better or worse, just different. But we can think we're crazy if that's not validated or mirrored back to us and everyone else is like, what are you talking about? Get over it. The movie's done. Mm -hmm. You're not, you didn't hurt your arm. Get over it. So just learning about our bodies and our brains and having skills and tools to befriend those intense experiences, they're skills and tools for life and they help us stay in our boundaries, sleep well at night and recover from a a potential fight, flight, freeze, fawn loop Um, once we understand, okay, I've got mirror neurons, I can nurture and support that because I know me. Mm Mm-hmm. I just thought that's a really interesting flavor of the conversation to bring to awareness. First of all, thank you for bringing in a forest analogy. I always feel like that makes me stop and take a big giant breath. Love a forest analogy. Thank you. Um, But also um, you've just sparked my mind into uh, um wanting to talk about that pain is completely dependent on context. Mm -hmm. So pain can be influenced by things you see and hear. So like you were saying, Joey, that that movie, um, 
or seeing your son experiencing pain. Um, so influenced by what you see and hear, but even what you smell, uh, taste, touch, things you say, which we can delve into a bit more, things you think and believe, yeah. things you do, places you go, people in your life, um, and, and things happening in your body, which um, is what Joey's body scan's all about. So all of those, and that's just sort of a short list, <laughs> but all of those things have an influence over your pain either in a um, uh, if we go back to the the danger and safety, so all of those things can be data for whether we're thinking about danger or whether there's more evidence for safety. Yeah, depending on the context around us and I'm, past experiences. I'm wondering if going back to the birth story, because I know for myself, when I was getting ready to give birth, I didn't know I was neurodivergent at that point in time, but I just knew myself well enough to know that when I go into hospitals, I'm very uncomfortable with feelings of danger in my body around the smells, around the lighting. Yeah around all the strange people who were coming and going from rooms, like, you know, nurses or technicians or doctors. And so my mm -hmm. body's actually it's literally feeling jarred when I have to go into hospital and visit friends or things. It's, 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 it's nothing the hospital's done wrong. It's just the way that my, my body processes and relates to the bright lights, the sensory input, the, the hordes of strangers, and then all the beeping monitoring devices, they also sort of, I don't feel safe mm -hmm. to my body, whereas I know other people who are nurses. They love hospitals. It's a second home. The bipping sounds, it that has a different emotional context for them. So mm, when I was They thinking, feel safer. Yeah. yeah. And so when I was thinking about planning my birth, I thought I'm happy to go to hospital if I have a medical complication and I'll fully surrender to the beauty of receiving that medical support. That's great. But if I don't have a medical birth and I have a, just uh, my baby comes, I'd rather be at home with just one or two midwives who I know and have an emotional relationship and trust with and I build trust slowly. That's just the way my brain works. So really honouring my nuances and my being authentic to myself gave me the opportunity to have a birth situation where I felt more safe, more supported, uh, more autonomy, more choice, and all of those things were really useful for my brain, body, optimal firing and window of tolerance flow. And similar to Charlotte, I had a, a pain-free birth twice. You know, the, my body was able to open and experience the sensations and intensity without ever shifting into that um, pain conversation or dialogue in my body, um, mm -hmm. which was obviously unexpected and quite... Um, I don't know, it was a beautiful healing experience, very grounding for me. And I think that was on the back of making all those choices and, and understanding my body and my nuance and my sensory system. And so I share that because I think these are the conversations we're learning to have with ourselves. How do I put myself in the the, the conditions or situations that are most suited to me, mm -hmm. but not necessarily other people or how other people tell me I should dot, dot, dot. But do you want to speak yes. to that as well? Because I think um, giving that context a story also gives people ways to pollinate their ideas and brainstorm for themselves. 
what this could yes to them yeah um so similar to you joey in that um i didn't necessarily realize that having home births was um i yeah it's because it, the first child was an unexpected home birth i had planned to birth in a birth center i knew similar to you that a hospital didn't feel like the a safe place for me um but i wanted to be in the birth center in the case that um that i wanted to be a bit closer to the hospital if i needed transfer um but as from a young child i remember going to visit relatives in hospital and getting all quit it just never felt right for me um but when people ask me you know and then they're during their first pregnancies of oh, should I have a home birth or a hospital birth I say whichever one you feel safer in um I'm certainly not a um well I am a home birth advocate in a way because it was an amazing experience but it, um it's an individual choice um as what feels safe for you and whatever other part, people that you invite into your birth and on that point of inviting so um yeah first birth was an uh, unexpected home birth um and was just myself and my husband there and called the midwife after my son was born and she said, how, how are you going? I said, oh, he's here. <laughs> um, and she came rushing down. She's like, well, that doesn't happen very often with, with first births. And I think my immediate response was, oh, my body and my baby were just working brilliantly together. So uh, I just felt completely safe in that environment. Um, planned home birth for second birth and it was just my husband and two midwives present at that birth and then when we were lucky enough to um, be expecting a third baby um, I sort of felt fully um, um, I had full awareness of what I was about to expect during that birth, even though sometimes I say, oh, third births can be a bit of a curveball. <laughs> I felt confident with my with my body and that I could deep duck down into my sort of deep state of mm. into my body and just be with myself. That um, at during that birth, I thought it was a nice time to invite. Um, others to witness the birth so I had both of my children my mother and my mother-in-law there which I wouldn't have had um, particularly uh, the mother and the mother-in-law at my first or second birth it wouldn't have been my safety and for some it would be but for me I just knew I'd need to be you know, my husband wasn't even allowed to touch me during my birth. Touch for me was, I just, it, it took me out of my body too much. I just need to be in me. Um, but yeah, to be able to invite others in. So that's kind of a nice demonstration of how things can change. You might have your, um, you know, the your window of tolerance or your window of what you feel safe at the moment might feel quite narrow um but with trust and expansion and checking in that that can 
widen and all of a sudden you can invite more people into your world or, um, you know, walk that bit further or travel for the first time, whatever it might be, it, it's it's always changing. But you, you need to find where your um, sweet spot is to start with Um and that might be, yeah, for, for some people in, in persistent pain states, um, it, it is really narrow and even the visualising of yes. moving the neck or it can be too much. So it, it's about finding the sweet spot and then working with yourself to to slowly widen that. Does that? 100%. Did I articulate that okay, Joey? Absolutely. And you're really describing parts of the... Um the rock steady process that people are taking themselves through of identifying things that perhaps we want to do in our lives, but we feel a bit scared. We feel afraid. We feel hesitant that it might trigger everything and having that awareness of, okay, where am I and what can I realistically handle and feel resourced for today? And really honoring that you don't have to blow yourself out of your window of tolerance and do too much too soon, but to have this gentle awareness of honoring, this is what I'm ready for today. And actually I had a similar birth experience too. In the first one, I really went into myself and boom, the baby came before I really knew what was happening. Um, and the second time my intuition was saying, actually, I want to have my eyes more open more. I want to be more connected. I want to have an awareness of the people holding me because my brain was seeking that um, experience of being deeply vulnerable and raw and authentic and seen by others. And I was really good and capable at going into myself, shutting out the world and boom. I was very <laughs> vulnerable and not as practiced at letting people look me in the eyes or hold my hands or help me and rub my head. And it was edgy for me and courageous to let that support in and really let my brain and my body go, okay, the world's not falling apart. People are here for me. And that was a part of my emotional growth. And everyone will have their own examples of, going into a noisy cafe and talking with friends and you really want to do it, the desire is there. But can you can you begin with maybe just a cup of tea at home, build up to a quiet local cafe that you're familiar with and then potentially with time and skills and resource, edge yourself toward a bigger, funkier, noisier cafe and maybe even try your earbuds or just do things that allow you to soften the blow and let your nervous system have more safety data than danger data. Mm. And you're going to get it wrong sometimes, you know, that's trial and error. Sometimes we don't realize we're overstepping the mark or there's just a very noisy event that throws you off kilter and having those skills, tools and self-compassion resources to ground and come back and recognize that this is a dynamic process with unpredictable outcomes. We have to have that courage to, um, to play in these gray areas and that's, that's growing our window of tolerance. Yeah. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, Charlotte. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Got on a bit of a ramble. I just was making, wanted to make sure it all, it felt like a nice flow in my mind, but I just wanted to. Well, something else that I think is really important, particularly for our misophonia and hyperacusis or um, tonic tensor tympani listeners who have that sound associated pain is some ways to get around it is anytime you can have a level of certainty or predictability about the inputs coming to you. So there's a level of autonomy and emotional readiness. So if you choose the loud sounds and if you choose the situation, 
your brain's more likely to access that with an element of safety. If it happens mm-hmm. to you unpredictable, uncertain, unplanned, more likely to get more of that threat response. So just another little trick or tool is to actively go out into the world with that sense of resource, resilience and preparation for potentially those difficult sounds coming your way. And then, of course, always having opt-outs to pull back and away. Um, So I've got lots of clients who might try and go to big concerts because they really want to. It's a desire. It's not a should. It's a want. And they'll they'll have their body double or someone going with them and they'll have somewhere to come back to and body scan and earmuffs or headsets to to lighten that sensory load if they are starting to reach beyond their window of tolerance. So always giving yourself a gentle plan to back out. Yes, and um, I spend time with people uh, empowering them to create agency over their own choices. Um, I'm just thinking about someone I saw the other day um, that was deciding to um, see a pain specialist um, for a medical intervention. Mm. And um, I, she felt that, that it was a, um, I just, I just have to do, it was a have to or a should. And yeah, just trying to change that narrative that, you know, you, you need to, to own this, uh, decision um, because what happens on the other side of that intervention when um, it, it hasn't gone as well as predicted or yes. um, it's yeah like we're setting up that context yeah um, or as you say Joey you know um, really taking agency over yeah I am going to go to the I'm choosing I really want to go to that music festival but knowing that it is is your choice and and you and put things in place to make it as as safe as possible yeah yeah and really also I think removing those um the shoulds which come in so many varieties and this is all part of our getting to know our inner world and our cultural conditioning and can be well I should go to the concert and I should be able to last for at least the first act and I I, people shouldn't have to wait for me I shouldn't have to drive me home and just really softening every single should down into I'm choosing someone to come with me who really gets it and knows I might retreat back into the car or I might put on my headset or I might be really non-verbal on the way home and I'm so stimulated that as we leave the concert I'm just I'm full and I need to really quieten and uh, Mm. rest And so just every step of the way, having that sense of agency and self-advocacy, because Mm. we're born with the brain and body we have, we can't fight reality. And whatever's neurologically synapsing at any point in time is your reality. There is no should about it. And I really love that this is a paradigm shift for how we experience ourselves, relate to ourselves, be humble and curious with each other instead of all these assumptions and shoulds about everybody, you know. It's, um, I just feel like it's a real gift, potentially, entering some of yeah. these persistent, um, difficult phases in life because they really invite us to pause, look within and, and shift our relationships to self and other in very, very powerful and, and meaningful ways. 
Yeah, and that ties in so nicely when we were saying before, we'll come back to language and talk about language, those shoulds and have tos and that internal dialogue. Well, that's, you know, the, the things you say to yourself, but language can have such a potent effect on the way we experience pain, not only our internal dialogue, but what we say to others and also what um, we've heard from from others in the the past or or present. Um, the the easiest example is for me someone that's been to a um, uh, with persistent knee pain that's been to a, an orthopedic surgeon years ago to say uh, that's the worst knee of it and. I should preface this by this is not potentially what the orthopaedic surgeon said to the person at the time, but it's the message that stuck with the person. So I'm not damning all orthopaedic surgeons, but it's how the person has interpreted and and what's stuck in that memory data of um, the, the, the language that they've heard in the past was Um, that's the worst knee I've ever seen. It's bone on bone, which for people listening on the podcast, it was in in (laughs) rabbit ears because um, it's not a useful phrase. Um, It's it's worst knee I've ever seen. It's bone on bone and you'll never run again. And it's, um, yeah, that sort of unhelpful language can be really powerful and really, shape the progression of someone's pain journey Mm. yeah and in um very very common in the vertigo and tinnitus world is hearing things like you've got to live with it forever there's no cure and these are just not founded they're misinformations they're myths but for people who do lack support and feel invalidated ongoing and you know same i'm thinking back to some of these mirror touch um synesthesia people if they go on for decades feeling and embodying all of this pain or having, you know, chronic and persistent and ongoing, never going anywhere diagnoses, when there is that lack of support, lack of validation and, and ongoing unhelpful language, we really do get caught in these cycles and loops that feel so hopeless, helpless and powerless. And that's often where people find find me. They'll stumble across a different way of viewing things, a different world, a different language, a different philosophical paradigm which we hope offers much more agency empowerment and hope for how we can actually change the synapses and actually change the inner experience through all of these things we're talking about so both are actually true and real and possible but it's I think it's um really important that we understand that we don't actually need a cure um and we don't have to live with it forever that the science is changing and some people have um heard these things 30 years ago so it's just really useful to hold what we hear lightly and diagnoses change a lot too as Charlotte and I will have witnessed over our careers that we do need to hold things lightly because the medical world is struggling to keep up with the complexity of all of these invisible elusive ongoing uh, symptoms and persistent sensations however it's language and we are always changing yes I was going to say that might lead us to our closing thoughts and reflections. Mm. Um, If there was any sort of 
closing encouragement or wisdom that that you wish to leave with listeners, but also maybe something you wish you could tell your younger self? Um, <laughs> what do you feel like you might want to say to younger Charlotte through some of her difficult times in her body? You know now. Yeah. Celebrate you just as you are. Mm. <laughs> is what I would say to my younger self. Um beautiful. But closing statements, I feel like reiterating what I've some of the points I've made, but all if I I would say all pain is real, but all sensations are real. Yeah. And uh, if you're feeling unvalidated, then that's from someone that potentially that person's not in that circle of safety for you. Um, and yeah, that we're always we're always changing, and let's just create that change in in the right direction by checking in with yourself surrounding yourself with supportive people, taking yourself to places that feel safe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like as I hear all of this, um, I just want to really hold my heart and acknowledge that sometimes this is really not easy, especially if you identify yourself as living perhaps in a relationship without validation or you're deeply embedded in a career that feels like there's not this supportive listening or validation. And so perhaps that chronic pain protection signal is sort of beginning to go, oh, hang on, bits of my life are not really nourishing me or supporting me, and that's giving me more of that danger data. And, oh, God, I've really got to make some tough decisions, you know, beyond caring for my physical body, also looking at the wider context and agency and choices. And I just want to acknowledge that take it slowly, take it gently, um, and build those layers of support for yourself. Um, there's no need to make sharp, quick decisions right away. But I think sometimes these sensation signals in the body are really inviting us to do just that, to question the choices we've made and the the people we've surrounded ourselves by or the career we've chosen. Maybe that's not a good person environment fit anymore and the body is starting to really collect that data saying it's not working for me. Someone's got to be on my team over here and and we're learning to listen to the body and really take the body seriously. Um, and it's a journey. So may everyone listening who's gotten this far in the talk, may it be gentle for you. And I hope this conversation's felt nourishing and supportive and informative. Uh, to learn more about me, you can visit seekingbalance.com.au. I've got my Rocksteady community and we're all in this process and journey together with live group calls and home modules and practices to take it at our own pace. And um, Charlotte's from Australia. And I don't know, Charlotte, if you if you want to give people any ways to connect with you at all or because um, you're more uh, well, lo locally with people than online, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. You can connect with me via telehealth um, appointments, but, yeah, that would be within Australia. Um, you can... You can Google me if you yeah. like. Great. Thank you so <laughs> thank much. You, thank you so much for the beautiful chat, Joey, and you're doing amazing, amazing work. So, yeah, thank you so much. 
yeah, I've really enjoyed the crossover and cross-pollinating of ideas and your beautiful explanations are so valuable. So thanks again, Charlotte. Really, We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye for now.